0: Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us this morning through your word. May it be for your glory and for our joy, In Christ Jesus. Amen. It seems to me that eschatology has fallen on rather hard times. At least certain aspects of eschatology. Uh, In my lifetime, I confess I've been in the evangelical church since I was converted. At about the age of 12. And I, I don't really remember any sermons. None come to mind. Any sermons on heaven or hell, for that matter, and those are our eternal states. And you can not study scripture without turning a few pages and coming upon one of these topics of our eternal destiny. Our ancestors in the faith in our Reformed tradition spoke much more of heaven and hell, especially heaven, as is testified through the Puritan writings, and also our hymns. Have you ever noticed many of our hymns, how they conclude? They conclude with us in glory, the consummated kingdom when we're with Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way. And the fact that C.S. Lewis says this means that it's not just my lifetime. In his lifetime, he felt eschatology had also fallen on hard times, uh, teachings especially with regard to heaven. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this, so here we have Paul this morning telling us that we are to encourage one another with these words, these words about eschatology, the wor- these words about the end times, and c s Lewis telling us that those who do so are the most effective in this in this world so let 's turn our attention this morning so that we might be encouraged that we might leave this place encouraged and even more effective for gospel ministry in the world. We start off in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And I've kind of titled this in my own notes here, if you were to see them, Eschatology 101. This is like the most basic teaching on eschatology. And the first thing Paul does is he clears up a confusion. It appears that there was some confusion. Paul had founded the church in Thessalonica. And obviously, when he, when he founded the church, he he taught he taught the people. And evidently he had touched on eschatology, but he had not given it a very full treatment. Um, and so there were some misunderstandings regarding Christ's return. And there's one mentioned here. And it is excessive grieving over the death of some Christians. Now, if you studied the whole book, what it appears to have happened is that they were, they were pretty excited about the Lord's coming. They were convinced he was coming very soon. And they were concerned that he was delaying And they were especially worried about he had delayed so much that some of the people in their church had died. And because their understanding was unclear, they were wondering, well, are they going to miss out on the festivities? Are they going to miss the boat? And due to that understanding, their grieving was excessive, hopeless. And before I go on, I'd like to note that Paul is in no way forbidding grieving or sorrow at death. We even know that Christ Uh, grieved when Lazarus died. But what he's saying is that we do not grieve as non-believers who have no hope. They rightly grieve exceedingly having no hope, their eternal destiny being death. But not so for us. Not so for us. And the rest of Paul's teaching here in chapter 14 is explaining why we don't grieve as the rest of mankind, why we have hope and even joy when a brother in Christ passes away. One last word of introduction here is there's a subtle correction that Paul weaves in to chapter 14. Did you notice he uses a metaphor for death? He talks about those who are sleeping. And that is a good metaphor for death for those who are Christians. Death for them is like sleep. And we think of sleep, sleep is a gift from God. Sleep is pleasant. Also, sleep is always temporal as opposed to destruction, which is eternal. And I also want to clear up, when Paul talks about sleeping, he's not referring to soul sleep. It's not, in the whole context, it obviously doesn't mean that our souls sleep, <clears throat> in a sort of limbo. Rather, he's talking about the body. That body, which one day will need to be awakened. It will need to be raised up, resurrected, to be reunited with the soul that is accompanying Christ in heaven. And then in the rest of chapter 14, we have what might be considered an eschatological creed. It is the we believes of eschatology. We could say this is, this is some of eschatology 101, in creedal form, we believes. The first one is in verse fourteen. We believe that Christ died and he rose again. Now this is the bedrock for all of the rest that follows. In our text and in an eschatology, we believe that God himself took on flesh, the Logos came to earth as a man, completely man like you and I, and he died physically. But he also did not remain dead. He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And you and I, if we're trusting in Christ, we've been united to Christ so that we share the exact same destiny. That we too will die unless Christ comes soon and takes us. That's my hope. I would love that, to be a part of that generation. But more than likely, we anticipate with the rest of mankind that we die. But more importantly, even as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so too you and I will be resurrected. He was the first fruits. We are the harvest. His destiny of resurrection is our destiny. Then we have our second article of faith the we believes in verse 14. Same verse, that when Christ returns, and listen to what the text says. It says that God, in verse 14, God will bring with him those Christians who have died. When Jesus Christ returns, the souls of deceased Christians in heaven will accompany Christ in his second, in second coming, his return. Then in verse 15, we have another, we believe, our third article. The resurrection of the body will take place when Jesus Christ returns. That is, those who have already died, when Jesus Christ returns, they will not miss the boat. They will not miss the festivities their bodies will be resurrected. They will be awakened, and they will be united eternally to their soul as God made us, as God intended. And then those who are alive will go straight to be with the Lord. They will not pass go. They will never experience death, but they will go straight to be with Christ and those who have died in Christ and have then been raised up. Our fourth article in the Creed, and I want to state before I read or state this article, that this one goes beyond Eschatology 101, and it goes beyond this very text's explicit teaching, but I don't believe it goes beyond the implicit teaching that we find within this text. In this great cosmic reunion in the sky, when Jesus Christ returns and all the saints of all times are with him, what happens next? What happens next? Does Christ then usher all of us, along with all the saints, back into heaven, as our dispensational brethren would teach? Or, do we accompany him to earth? Well, I would like to argue the latter. In the text, I think, if we read it carefully, argues the latter. The first thing we need to note in verse 16 what is the direction of Christ in this text? The text says that he is descending from heaven. There is a downward motion of Christ in this text. If that motion were going to be reversed, we would expect to see that explicitly, but we actually see just the opposite. And it's very subtle, but in the Greek it comes out more clearly. It says here to meet with the Lord, that we will be gathered together in the air to meet with the Lord. In the Greek actually, the word to meet is actually a noun. It's a meeting that's going to take place in heaven. And this is a unique word. It occurs a few times in the New Testament. And it's also in classical Greek. It has the same meaning. It's a rich word. And what it means is this. When visitors, important visitors or dignitaries, would visit a city, the inhabitants of the city would go out to meet them outside the city and they would do that in order to celebrate their arrival and to welcome them into the city. And they would always then accompany that person into the city. That's the exact word that's used here. In the New Testament, a good example, at least the very root of that word, uh, is used to talk about when Christ has the triumphal entry. Do you remember? He has the triumphal entry. They welcome him with singing Hosanna, with palm branches, and then they're welcoming him into their city. I could give several more examples from the New Testament But that's the word that's used here. There's going to be a meeting in the sky. But it's in order to give welcome to Jesus Christ. It's in order to welcome him into our city, into our world, and to celebrate his arrival. In other words, this word confirms the downward descending motion of Christ in the text. And lastly, I would just say this ought not surprise us. Uh, There is a prophecy of the day of the Lord found in Zechariah 14. I believe, referring to this day. And it says, Then the Lord will come with all the holy ones with him. So this, too, is a part of our eschatological creed. Perhaps we'd say on the level 201 level teaching. When Jesus Christ comes, it is not to take us away. It's rather to have us join him in his second coming and in his vanquishing of evil and judging of unrepentant man. Last article we have in our creed, verse 16, um, talks about the return of Christ. And this return will be neither subtle nor secret. You won't miss it. No one will miss it. It will be accompanied, if you read the text, from a voice of an archangel with a loud command and with trumpets. Now, um, if you ever want to keep a secret, don't bring a trumpet out. Trumpets are bad for secrets. They are calls to warfare. They are calls to wake up and to be alive. It is as loud an instrument as you can have. So this second coming of Christ, it will be public, it will be visible, and it will be awesome. And this also flies in the face of much teaching on the rapture that you've probably heard. Sort of a secret rapture in which some mysteriously disappear Friends, there's nothing secret about this. Now, I would quote C.S. Lewis once again, and listen especially to the conclusion of his quote. Lewis captures things so nicely, doesn't he? Um, he says, the doctrine of the second coming is deeply uncongenial to the whole evolutionary or developmental character of modern thought. We've been taught to think of the world as something that grows slowly towards perfection, something that progresses or evolves. That's secular humanism, even in C.S. Lewis's day. Christian apocalyptic offers no such hope. It does not even foretell, which would be more tolerable to our habits of thought, a gradual decay. It foretells a sudden, violent end imposed from without. An extinguisher popped onto the candle. A brick flung at the record player. A curtain rung down on the play. Halt! Halt! This day will be the worst nightmare fulfilled for some people. But it will also be the fulfillment of the wildest dreams of those who are awaiting Jesus Christ. At that cataclysmic moment, in an instant, those who have died in Christ will be raised to life with Christ. And then after that, all who are still alive will be caught up together with them to join in the heavenly fiesta. where We will be with Christ forever and ever. And so for those who have tasted death of a loved one and are even grieving this morning estrangement from loved ones who have passed away who were in Christ, Paul says encourage one another with these words. Death is not the final state for the Christian. It is but sleep that precedes our glorious resurrection and our eternal union with Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 5, Paul begins to give some implications here of how we're to live. And this fabulous news that he has just shared could lead to some erroneous ideas that Paul wants to clear up. And he addresses two extreme reactions that could distort this teaching. One being an overzealous predicting of the day, and the second being living as if this day were never going to come. Chapter 5, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you don't need me to say anything to you on that. Evidently, Paul has covered this, but it was a problem that was cropping up in this church. There were those in the church who were actually, they had quit working. They were just kind of mooching off others because they knew Jesus Christ was coming in 13 days or whatever they were thinking. And Paul's warning here, don't get caught up in those guessing games. Don't get caught up in the Herald Campings guessing games uh, of when Jesus Christ is going to return. And one of the things we see here is that these sort of guessing games have been a popular Christian pastime since the early church. And they've caused much dishonor to our Lord sort of these foolish speculations using dubious interpretive methods to try to pinpoint a day or an hour in which Christ is going to return. And so although we do wait for the day, although we do expect the day to come, God has not told us when it's going to be. It is his deal and not ours. But then the rest of the text deals with another extreme. The other extreme is to live as if Christ's return were not imminent. That is, that he could come back at any moment. And I believe this to be the much more common problem today, even historically. And for those who believe this way or live this way as if Christ is not going to return, Paul uses two metaphors. If you notice, chapter 5 is just full of metaphors. And the first two metaphors he uses for those who live as if Christ's imminence or the imminence of his return were not so is that of a thief in the night. Now... No one goes to bed anticipating a robber, do they? Because if they thought a robber were coming, they would not go to bed in the first place. It is always totally unexpected. And so Christ's return will be also. It will happen, and it could happen at any time, including today. Second metaphor he uses uh, he compares Christ's second coming to uh, child labor. We have five children, so my wife can relate to this. All of you ladies who have had children can relate to this metaphor. Uh, my wife would be reading a book. She'd be sleeping or she'd be eating pickles with peanut butter. And bam, the contractions would start. They'd come on suddenly and they'd come on painfully. That's how it will be for those who are not ready. Actually, it'll be sudden for all of us and Painful for those who are not awaiting it. So in order to avoid these two extreme unhealthy reactions, how ought we to live? And that's the subject of the rest of Paul's teaching. And Paul here uses three different metaphors. Uh, He uses a metaphor of light and darkness. He uses this metaphor of sleeping and awake. And then he uses a warfare metaphor or image of being alert. First of all, light and darkness. Paul's saying, brothers, you are not in darkness like those who walk blindly with no hope. Your eyes of faith have been opened, and you see the gospel, and you see the conclusion of the gospel, that Jesus Christ will come to take you home. Now, those who are in darkness live as if this life is all there is, as if Christ will never return, as if there will never be a resurrection or a judgment. But you are not of the darkness that you should share in this ignorance and be caught off guard. Rather, and then he begins to mix in another metaphor. He just flows from one to the other. Since you are not children of night, you're children of the light. You're children of the day. So you ought not be sleeping. And by sleeping, he obviously doesn't mean physically. But he means spiritually sleeping this sort of stupor or laziness or daze that comes upon our mind where we're unmindful of God, indulging in sin like unbelievers, as if we didn't believe that Christ could come back any day. Rather, he says, don't be like that. Don't sleep. Rather, be sober, not drunk like at night. Be completely sober spiritually. That is self-controlled as those who are fully awake spiritually, as those who are like those who are fully awake right now in this sermon. Be such towards Christ in your mind. And then verse 8, he morphs right into describing this alertness in terms of warfare. Be as a soldier in times of war, watchful of our enemy's moves, but even more so attentive in mind to our captain that's coming. Now I, like most of you, know nothing of warfare, except what we've seen in movies and perhaps heard from friends, older friends who have participated in war. And I have an older friend who has participated in war. Many of you know this older friend. His name is Stan Colmeyer. Some of you smile. You know Stan. Stan's a crusty old veteran who God's grace has changed. Uh, and he has been a member at Evergreen, but they've had to move to a different part of Oregon, so I don't see Stan as much. But one day he came to Mexico. I was a missionary there for 18 years. They came down. I sat and talked with Stan for hours about warfare. It was awesome. If you ever can corner Stan, you ought to do that. Um, but a few little details that came to my mind that just curious. Stan was a sharpshooter. I mean, he was on the front lines. And Stan would go, they would send Stan sometimes by himself to set traps, This guy was bold. He would go set traps on the enemy in the woods. And so he'd be there in the woods really close to the enemy where he could kind of watch them and he was going to attack them at the right time. But he would sit there for days in this camouflage, virtually motionless. And I asked Stan some pointed questions and realized, uh, Stan didn't go to the bathroom. He, He did it in his pants if he had to go. And he ate in slow motion. He he said it would take several minutes to lift a bite of food to his mouth. Such was the slowness with which he had to move. Asked him if he slept. He did sleep but he said it was such a light sleep that even a rustling of a leaf nearby would wake him up. He was as alert and his senses attuned as is humanly possible because the enemy was close at hand and there was far too much danger to let his guard down well this is similar to our situation isn't it spiritually we do have an enemy that prowls around that would like nothing more than to lay us waste he's close at hand scheming our downfall he would desire that we like unbelievers that we would live only for the moment with no mind to eternal things with no hope so paul says be watchful be ready heaven is real and our captain will certainly return don't let your guard down now my friend stan also had his own armor that he kept on at all cost while on the field stan didn't go out into battle in his jammies with mittens on to keep his hands warm we also have an armor that we dare not go without. We're to put it on regularly, putting on this armor that we need for spiritual battle. And Paul listed different ways in different places, but here he's, he, he talks about a breastplate to cover us, protect us, and a helmet. Faith and love are our breastplate. And hope is our helmet that will protect us in this battle. Have you ever heard those three mentioned together before? Faith. Hope, love. Paul likes to mention those three together. And it's because they go together. Let me see if I can help explain how this armament fits together or how these things are tied together. Faith, first of all, has a backward gaze. Faith looks back to the cross of Jesus Christ. It looks back to Christ's atoning work for us. And it trusts in Christ who died for our sins and was resurrected. It looks back first upon the cross. And as we trust in Jesus Christ, as we have our faith in him, his righteousness is accredited to us so that we lack nothing in Jesus Christ. Though scripture says that we have everything in the heavenly realm. He has given us all that we need. He has so fully accepted us that it frees us not to use other people as peons to meet our needs. The love of of Jesus Christ, trusting in his love for us, the cross, frees us to begin to be able to love other people. Uh, Paul says it this way, that the only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself in love. So those two are connected. Love is faith's expression. And then the same faith that looks back towards the cross also looks forward. It gazes forward, trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, for his grace today, trusting in him for his grace tomorrow, next week, and for all of eternity. John Piper wrote a book called Faith and Future Grace. But this concept of future grace, it's nothing more faith and future grace than the biblical word hope. So let me try to give a one-sentence summary here. Our faith in Christ that expresses itself in love and projects itself forward in hope We'll protect our hearts and we'll protect our minds until he comes again. Keep putting that armor on. We need it to persevere until our captain returns. The text begs one more question. Why would we even do this? The text that follows begs the question, what inspires us and gives us strength and motivates us to persevere and to stay at it? Look at verse 9, chapter 5. Actually, let me finish verse 8 so you see the connection. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation for, you could use the word here, because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I should keep reading. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Friends, we've not been appointed to wrath. On that day we've been appointed to salvation we've been appointed appointed to eternal salvation because Jesus Christ has forgiven all of our sins past present future he died for them and this is our hope to which we return again and again and again as we wait and we watch it is the motor that drives our perseverance it is the anchor that holds us firm in life storms this gospel message of our sins forgiven so that we have eternal salvation if i could go back to the warfare metaphor it is our fortress our stronghold in the spiritual battle christ has purchased us for his own our sins have been paid for our destinies are firm they are secure salvation and eternal union with jesus christ therefore paul says once again encourage one another with these words. Those who have tasted the sting of death through losing a loved one. Those who are facing imminent death. Those who live with the fear of death. Those who live with the decaying effects of death upon their bodies. Jesus Christ will return and those who believe this gospel message will be resurrected. It's going to happen. It's not that far away. And it is the great eraser of all the effects of death. And it is our eternal state. It's the final word on our eternal estate. Our body and soul will be reunited as God intended. And we will be reunited with those who are in Christ, whom we love, who have preceded us. But most importantly, we will be reunited with the lover of our souls, the one who purchased us, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. You have only two days to live for, two days that need to be on your heart's calendar this day, today, and that day. For your own joy, for your infinite gain, neglect not either. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope we have of eternal life. We thank you for the hope we have of eternal bliss, that Jesus will come to take us to live with Him forever. That this age of the cross and death is temporary for us. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not be sleeping as Your church. I pray for ascension. I pray for myself. I pray for evergreen. I pray that you, by your grace, would be awakening us, that we may be anxiously awaiting Christ's return and that the hope of Christ's return would come to bear on the way in which we live each day. We ask that you would make us a people, even in the midst of carrying crosses, that we would be people of hope, that we would drink deeply of Christ regularly, that we would put on the armor of faith, hope, and love daily, trusting in Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning we would leave this place well-armed to go into battle and hold firmly to Christ, to be fully awake, awaiting his return. Fill us with that hope and make us most effective for your kingdom in this world. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.